What up, young slumlords and ladies? This is Jake Lapp, and welcome to the Young Slumlords Podcast, where me and Caleb Henshaw talk our shiz and hopefully help spark the idea for finding your financial independence in this paycheck-to-paycheck world. What's going on, guys? Welcome back. This week, we have a really diff- different than the rest of our episodes. We're, we're taking a different turn, and we're talking with Kevin Riley, who's a former NFL player, broadcaster, motivational speaker. You know, he has some books out. And I actually met Kevin when I was in Williamson, and he came in, and he did a speech, and he brought in his books. And, you know, in our chapel, we, we all listened to him, and it was a really interesting story. And he he needed someone, or he requested that someone from the paint shop take him around because his son-in-law at the time was was with him and was doing high-end faux finish and painting and stuff. So he he was more interested in in the painting. So I I took him around. I took the both of them around and explained the school and told him a little bit about my story. And you know, a couple months later, I I had given him my card and he, he called me up and was like, Hey, Jake, you still paint you want to come paint my house and I was like absolutely so so we developed our relationship from there you know I painted for his brother and it it definitely enhanced my rep reputation because after I painted his house whenever people were asking about my skill set I was like yeah I you know paint a bunch of NFL players houses and stuff like that and you know it wasn't not true and and it (laughs) it was true and um but it, it it helped me a lot and um me and Kevin have stayed in contact since then, and he's just a really, really great guy to know. He's been in my corner, and I, I'm really happy that he's able to be here with us tonight and to, you know, give some motivation to to our guys and going forward in real estate. You know, things like time management, goal setting, things like that that are all no matter what you're doing, whether it be real estate or the latter. You know, finding success. And I think Kevin can add a lot of value there. So with that, Kevin, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Man, glad to have be on it with you, Jacob and uh, Caleb. And Jacob, uh, you know, you were a guy that I took a liking to right away because number one of your work ethic and some of the things we're going to talk about today, goal setting and having a plan, you developed at a very young age. Uh, you are mature beyond your years with that. And I continue to marvel at the things that you have done and the decisions you've made to get where you are so far. And if uh, Jacob Lapp was ever a stock and you went uh, you went public, I'd be buying some of it. I'll tell you that. That's, that's that. about how much I feel about you uh, and the things that you have accomplished in your short life. And I'm sure you're going to accomplish more. You know, uh, I know that I'm a little bit, you know, different than some of your usual speakers, but I can tell you there's a lot of commonality between real estate people, people who sell things and corporations, and even people who are in their own businesses. And that's what I'll try to hone in on today is some of the things that I've learned through experience the hard way and some of the things I learned through the great training that I had in the 30 years as an executive with the Xerox Corporation. Uh, In the 1970s and early 1980s, we were considered the best sales organization in the world. And that's because of the training they gave us. If you can believe this, we had a training center and Leesburg, Virginia. It was about the size of a small college. And um, when I was clearing out my my files from uh, uh, when I, after I retired from Xerox after 30 years, I had a file that said Leesburg. And 
I took the time one night just to check it out. I had spent 32 weeks of my 30 years down at Leesburg uh, with training of every kind. And uh, Xerox believed heavily on the method of train the trainer. For instance, if uh, I was working with a corporation and I wanted my sales team to get you know, with it with some new ideas and how to do closing skills and all that sort of stuff, they call in some corporate organization that does sales training. Well, I'll tell you something, when they bring in somebody from the outside, they do not have the credibility that somebody would who would be training from the inside had. As a matter of fact, it became a joke among some of the corporations that I spoke to that, you know, when, when I would go in and talk to them, we'd talk about training because I, had, I would speak to them initially and then a guy would say, hey, do you do training? You have their ears now. You have their mind. They trust you. And I would ask them, why didn't you trust the guys before us? And they say, ah, you bring in people from the outside. They're liars from out of town. And you know what? They may be and they may not be. But if you got that label on you, you're not going to be, you know, wowing them and getting your me- your uh, methods across. So Xerox really believed very hard in training us as executives and managers. And then we had to cross train our teams. The second biggest thing is they made you buy into what you were training because it would be hard to do the training if you weren't buying into it. And that was one of the things that made it, you know, more more dullable than, say, you know, bringing somebody from out of town who's not going to be around to even check later on if you have any problems with the training or how you, how the methodology goes. So that being said, there's some commonalities there that I'll, I'll try to touch upon. Uh, Jacob, you and I spoke, and I guess one of the things I should probably do is talk about you and I, when we talked, you asked me, what are, when you get a customer to do training, what are the number one, two, and three ask you get about the training necessary. And without a doubt, the top three are time management, being able to manage your time in this crazy day. Number two is making sure that you prioritize things so you can manage them correctly. And that actually goes before number one. Before you make a plan, you need to have your priorities straight on what you need to do first. And last but not least, they're always asking for, how do I keep up with the rapid pace of technology? Uh, I'm not so good at the third one. Me neither. The first two, uh, I can talk ad nauseum about because not only did it play heavily in the life that I led as an executive at Xerox, but playing for the Miami Dolphins, who were the world champions of the time under Don Shula, uh, getting to know Dick Vermeil, who won a Super Bowl with the Rams, but he took the Eagles to a Super Bowl, and then playing on a team up in New England that wasn't doing the things that these other two teams were doing. I saw what was right and what was wrong in managing, even on the NFL level. So this managing your time and taking care of priorities are two things that can really make you or break you in whatever business you're in. Because while you're dealing with some priorities that are low priorities, although they're easy to take care of, so those are the ones we go after real quick, by the way. The next thing you know, some of the big priorities you put off are right here in your face, two inches away, and now you're hustling to get it done, and you're never going to have a time to do a professional job when you're limited on time for a big action item. You to see, you know, what part of that you want me to take a, a part first. It's funny when you when we were going through your biography, your track record at Williamson, it was like I played for the Miami Dolphins. Everyone's, you know, you get a little clap. I played for the Eagles, you get a huge clap. I played for the Patriots, silence. You know, but no, we, now, now guys, I get booed. 
Yeah, I like, bet. I, I bet. absolutely get booed. And I tell them, <laughs> hey, okay, I accept the booze, but I want you to understand there's a caveat there. I played with them before they started cheating. There you go. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. But that definitely puts everything in a good frame. I kind of wanted to know, like, a little more before Xerox. I know this corporate experience at Xerox is where you learned a lot of your leadership and entrepreneurial stuff. But in the beginning stages, like when you were, you know, working at the NFL, like that's a, a, a lot of guys dream, you know, that's the dream. That's the goal all throughout high school, all throughout college. Kind of what was the, the feelings that you were feeling like you, you were bringing in all this money for the time and like the options were, I'm sure, endless. And I think that'd be something that our listeners would be really curious. Like, what did you do during that time period? I love talking to you young guys that think we made a lot of money back then. <laughs> let me let me set the story straight there. Um, I Just about two years ago, when I was speaking engagement with, with some recent Eagles, uh, we went out to have dinner afterward, and I was the alumni there. And uh, they were talking about a potential strike that the NFL was possibly facing. I think it was three years ago they were facing a strike because the um, players' agreement had run out, the collective bargaining agreement that most unions do. And so there was, you know, as always, a threat of a strike. And so I'm having dinner with these guys. They said, you know, um, tell us a little about you went through a strike. We did. Uh, I had to walk a picket line. Uh, I went down to Washington, D.C. to walk a picket line. Uh, I came up on Monday Night Football uh, to try to stop people from coming in and walk the picket line at the vet back in the day. And um, when I said, uh, well, we were working for a Let me ask you guys something. What do you understand about the 1974 strike? trap that we had, you know, the, the, the strike that we did. They didn't know anything about it. I right. said, okay, well, here's here was the big issue that's mostly been solved. I said, we didn't have free agency. You know how Major League Baseball has free agency and, and then the NBA got it and then we got it third way down the road. It was after 1974. You guys are the beneficiaries at, and it wasn't a while later before the NHL got it. They were the last ones to get it. They didn't have any concept of what free agency was. They did hardly believe that when I got drafted by the Miami Dolphins, I was their prop. Pro, I was their a product. I was their slave until they decided I wasn't. And when I got released uh, in training camp from the Dolphins, I was picked up on waivers by the Eagles, and then I became their property. And you know, if you wanted more money and you were negotiating. They tell you to go sit home on the couch. Mm. They had that kind of leverage. Right. So, you know, you went in, not that you didn't negotiate, you got as high as you went, you had an agent, and after a while, they weren't even worthwhile because you knew what the guy got if you were a seventh round draft pick in last year's draft versus this year's draft. So you knew it was going to end somewhere in that number. And anyway, I said to him, Hey, you know what? Just out of just for kicks, I will buy the next two rounds of drinks. If you guys can come within $150,000 of my first year salary, well, they got the pencils and pens out and they're figuring out the cost of money today versus the cost of money yesterday, all that, this, that, and the other. And they came back and they said, okay, well, you know, the NFL minimal salary three years ago was $500,000. If you played three games in the NFL, you were guaranteed $500,000. Okay. So they figured that I made probably because I wasn't a free agent. I had to make, even with the cost of money, then I had to make at least $250,000. And when I told him I made $17,500, one of them said, 
you couldn't even pay our fine for being out late at night. <laughs> and they weren't all far from being wrong. Wow. So, you know, uh, that you talked about uh, putting things in perspective. Hey, not for nothing. I got three times what a teacher got paid then. They sure. got paid $6,000 a year. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't something you could retire off of. All of us had second jobs. And guess what my second job was, Jacob? I did about 40 speaking engagements because I was still living in the off season. I was still living in the Wilmington, Philadelphia area. I was living in Wilmington. Most of the guys then went home because they had jobs. Nobody could survive off of just the NFL salaries they were making in 1973 through 1975. So I would do, I had a a little uh, understanding with a guy, a, a general manager at the Eagles at the time that I would do for every free speaking engagement I would do for charity, they would get me lined up with two. And that's how I honed. And, you know, we're talking making 150 bucks was a good night out for me. Okay. You know, honing my skills there, being on daises with guys that uh, I stole shamelessly from, you know, to get to my speaking skills. I saw what worked, what didn't work. I saw what would work in my area. So, you know, going back to that, I just wanted to put some perspective on it. People had to work back then in the NFL in the offseason in order to make ends meet. That being said, you mentioned leadership. Let me go back to saying my leadership started probably in eighth grade when I was captain of all three sports at a Catholic grade school. In high school, an all-boys high school called Salesianum, I captained the football and the basketball team. And I don't think that's happened since I left. And then when I got to Villanova, I was co-captain of the, of the team. And even when I got to the Eagles, I wasn't a starter. So what could I shoot for? Well, I could be captain of the special team. And that was my goal. And I'll say for all the listeners out there, you know, setting goals is really important. And, and that's how we, that's the next step down from when you start to do your priorities. There's an old saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Uh, I came to the conclusion that if I set goals, even if I didn't get to the goal I set, I ended up higher up the ladder than I ever would because I had a track to run on, time management, managing my priorities, and I wanted to get to a certain spot. And you unconsciously, Jacob, set some goals for yourself. I know that you were not envious of any of the buddies you had that came out that owned college, you know, uh, money back for their college loans. Mm -hmm. You came out on top because you squirreled away money uh, while you were painting in the summer and in the evenings while you were at Williamson. And when you came out, you had money in the bank to put a down payment on a house. That is incredible that you had that kind of you know, power at your age, and you've continued to parlay it. But you, whether you wrote it down on paper or whether you had it locked in your brain, you had a goal of where you wanted to be when you got done at Williamson, and you had a goal where you wanted to be when you got out. And I know you're in your head right now of how many more houses you could flip until you're building. Absolutely. Because I know you, and I know that's where you are. So, you know, to start to sing out, this is generic for anybody who wants to be successful. You got to have goals realistic goals. Okay. Then you've got to have a plan and that's where, what are your priorities to get to that plan? And then you got to manage your time. Um, there's an old saying out there too, that, you know, as the, as we get older, we realize how much time we wasted on things that didn't matter. And boy, if you can get that into your young skull, if you're under 40 right now, you have learned something that is a real gem to think about. And you can't do that until you like to look at your schedule that you've prioritized 
to manage your day and your weeks when you say, do I really, and put time, mat, put time uh, parameters around. That's going to cost, that's going to cost me 20 minutes. That's going to cost me 15 till they become subconscious where you go, I don't have time for that. People try to do everything. And that's when they get stuck doing a lot of things poorly because we can only give our best effort to a select few priorities in our life. And if that you want to lead and be a leader, you've got to figure out the time management prioritization schedule. I, I wanted to kind of go into, you know, you were the epitome of an athlete, like the the athlete. You were the captain of basketball, football. You came into the NFL, which, you know, hearing those financials is kind of a bummer. Um, you know, thinking back to you know my perception of of an NFL player you know they everyone's just got money to throw away but going oh they make silly money now that's right. what we call it especially right silly money right but you know e- even then like I see the guys now you hear about you know one year contract or a two year contract that people are getting now and it's like they could just play that one or two years and be gone and make that money go to work for them and never work again in their life but you set all these goals, you made all these things happen. You had that drive for yourself to, to be the best. You, you were in the top tier of whatever you were doing. And then I don't, I didn't think, I don't think I mentioned it in your biography, but when it got cut short, you still kept that same energy going forward for the rest of your life. And I, I want to know what, what it is inside of you. Was it your parents? Was it the way that you grew up? Was it just aspirations in general that kept you going through that? Because we, we talk a lot about like the failures and stuff that we've encountered and uh, almost all the successful people when you hear their interviews, they, they've they had uh, a big setback, a big hurdle that they needed to get over that completely changed the course of their life and made them who they are today. My two questions to you are kind of, what was that driving force for you? And then two, how did overcoming that hurt? Like when that, I just want to hear like your, your perception of that story. Well, to answer your first question, I think a lot of people growing up face a lot of hurdles and obstacles as kids and children that they don't seem to be able to overcome and they get no help from adults and they just end up being mediocre adults or something less than that because they just not, didn't get a very good start. I'd have to say that, you know, I grew up in probably the perfect time ever in this country when it was time to be uh, a kid and a teenager. And that was in the, in the 50s and the 60s. You know, I was in a neighborhood with all families and it didn't matter whose mother yelled at you. She had the authority to, you know, to, to reprimand you uh, if you did something bad or if you just did something like, you know, you didn't wait for everybody else to eat. They would reprimand you. And they had my parents' blessing to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we grew up under the guise of having a lot of what I call, you know, not control, but, you know, a lot of direction. And I think kids growing up want to have some sort of game plan. They want to have something they feel comfortable with. They, you know, they, they want to be able to look in, at a structure. They want structure. And I can tell you there's a boys, an all-boys school for uh, minority males here in Delaware called Nativity Prep. And they've taken these kids that have pretty good, decent IQs, and they've put them in this school together, and they've proven that if they can give them structure, which they do, that kids will actually learn better, 
they'll start to prepare better and they become leaders. So some people are missing that. And I don't know what the cure is for that. But I will tell you, if you're brought up with some sort of structure and some kind of guidance, and I'll add here, and I don't mean to be religious, but some kind of moral compass, because that's where we probably have the one, you know, guideline that we can agree with, you know, what is bad and what is was good out there, who is evil and who is good. You got to have some moral guidelines that you hold yourself responsible for. Ask somebody who thinks they have it together or say, tell me in one sentence what you stand for. And you hear them go, well, you know what? You haven't even thought about it. If you haven't thought about it, what do you stand for? And once you establish what you stand for, then there's the other things that come with it. You know, am I am, am I a human being that helps other human beings? Am I somebody that has empathy? Am I somebody that's greedy? Well, that doesn't work in this world if you want to have a moral compass. Mm-hmm. Okay, take care of your people. Dick Vermeil has it said that if you want to be a leader, you want to be a good businessman, you want to be a good manager, you want to be a good owner, you must handle this. People want to be treated as if they were your family, okay? You, people don't care about how much you know until people know about how much you care. Think about that. People don't care about how much you know until people know about how much you care. Is this person going to protect me? If I'm a good employee, if I give 110%, am I going to end up getting cut during a pandemic? Well, you know, some people had to really muscle up and stand their ground as owners and take beatings because they wanted to keep their people in place until this thing was over. Those people will never forget them. By the same token, by the time I got cut by the third NFL team, I was going, well, I don't have any, you know, loyalty to anybody. And I just look, who am I playing for this week? Because I just didn't have the same, what I want to say, I didn't have the same emotion or enthusiasm that I had when I played for Salesiana, when I played for Villanova. We were a team for four years. You didn't jump to another team. So those are the kind of things that give you the moral direction. Now, the second part of your thing is, okay, so you have a little bit of that. You have enough to get by. You can enhance it. How do I enhance it? Okay. There isn't a human being alive that's hearing this broadcast today that doesn't have a problem. Some are bigger than others, and some are smaller. The only people on this earth that don't have problems are six feet under the ground. Okay. They don't have any problems at all. Now, when you have a big problem, when you have a medium problem, how do you handle it? Well, you have to have a process. You have to step back. You got to say, what's the worst that can happen? Okay. What do I have to do to make it better? I figure out the worst that can happen. We had an old saying, no matter what happens with this dilemma I have, they can't send me to Vietnam. Okay. Now that might sound crazy for you guys, but the war was no place. Nobody wanted to go to Vietnam in the first place, but you got drafted. You had to go. So that was pretty bad place to be at the time. Anyway, if you figure out that you're not going to die from whatever the the problem is, then the next thing you got to do is have a plan to embrace it and do the best you can with the problem you have. You know that I lost my left arm, my left shoulder, and five ribs to a terrible disease called Desmoid. And there was nobody more down in the dumps on the first day that I was out of ICU in my in my hospital room than Kevin Riley. I looked at these three pictures, the three-year-old, the two-year-old, and the infant that I had at home, and I had to turn the pictures down because I was tearing up. How was I going to make a living from them? How was I going to be a dad? I'd never be able to coach one of these high school teams or maybe one of the CYO teams. And I just kept thinking, who will hire me now? Look at me now. I'm a, I'm a freak. I went from being an NFL player with a high standard and everybody, you know, loving me to now I'm down here and I'm handicapped. I'm an amputee. 
I'll tell you, I was never lower in my life. See, I didn't fall from just being regular Joe to being an amputee and fighting for my life because they weren't sure they got all the tumor, by the way. But I was down here thinking, I got to save my life. And even if I do, what's waiting for me? Will Xerox hire me back? Well, but, well anyway, I can't tell the story. It's too long. But a guy named, I'll say his name anyway. Um, I'm not going to say his name. He got on the phone with me and he changed my life. I knew what he had been through and I knew that I could uh, I could relate to him. And he got on the phone with me. He played in the NFL. He was hurt so bad when he went to Vietnam. He did go to Vietnam. His name was Rocky Blyer. Okay. If you don't know that name, Google it. It's an unbelievable story. They told him never play. He would never play football again because of the injury he had at his knee in Vietnam. And a doctor laughed at him and told him that he would never, ever, ever play another down of football. And he'd be lucky again if he walked without a limp. Well, thanks to Art Rooney, the gracious owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers at the time, brought in the two best orthopedic surgeons in the world. And they gave him two years to rehab. But you know why the doctors said they'd work with him? Because they knew he had grit. They knew he was going to try everything he could humanly possible to get back on the playing field. Well, he got back on the playing field. He's got four Super Bowl rings. Second leading ground gainer behind Franco Harris for the Pittsburgh Steelers during that era where they got four. And he called me because we casually knew each other. But he called me because he was a human being and he knew that I had a big problem and he knew where my head was. And finally, he says to me, you know, have anybody been in to tell you about your limitations? And I said, yeah, this very well-meaning volunteer who had one arm today came in and he depressed the hell out of me. I know he was trying to be positive. But he was telling me all the things I wouldn't be able to do. I wouldn't be able to tie my shoes, my tie. Uh, I wouldn't be able to, to uh, play racquetball again. I wouldn't be able to golf again. I mean, just one. And I haven't thought about all those things. And that's possibly true. And Rocky said to me, listen to me. Listen to me. He said, let me tell you something about experts. He's not an expert. And even if he was, experts built the Titanic and amateurs built the Ark. Experts can be wrong. And he made me promise to him that I wouldn't quit on anything unless I tried it a dozen times. And he sent me this little poem. Do you mind if I say it? Okay, this little poem he sent to me, he said, you're going to fail hundreds and thousands of times. And instead of stepping back and counting to 10 and trying to get your breath and approaching the trial again or whatever project you're working on, instead of counting to 10, just say this little poem. I think it'll help you. It helped me. And it goes like this. If you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't. It's almost a sense that you won't. If you think you're outclassed, you are. You got to think high to rise. You got to be sure of yourself before you can win the prize. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. For in this world, we find success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in a state of mind. Remember, life's battles don't always go to the biggest, fastest, or strongest man. But sooner or later, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. Well, he said to me, now it's up to you. You, we can, you can either quit on life where you could be the best one-armed man you can possibly be. And I chose the latter. And I will tell you, after all this time, there are only three things I positively cannot do. I cannot jump rope by myself. I cannot play uh, jump rope by myself. And I cannot give the I, I cannot give the left-handed, number one sign left-handed to angry motorists on I-95. <laughs> but contrary to what I was told, I do play golf. I've run in the marathon. I've run in five half marathons. And I continue to work my way up the scale at the Xerox Corporation. And now I'm out giving motivational talks all over this country because there are so many people asking the same questions. How do I get there from here? Well, let me tell you something. You're going to face hard times 
And it all depends on how you handle those hard times, whether or not you will be competing because hard times teach us, teach us lessons and those lessons are valuable. I really like the the poem and just, you know, I feel like all of that holds remarkably true for, for whatever, you know, struggle your people are facing. Um, I mean, I feel like you got to, I mean, really tip your hat to Rocky kind of reached down and pulled you out of that, you know, pit of despair pretty or you know, just when you were at your lowest point, he gave you kind of a beacon of hope that, you know, you can't believe what you're being told by these doctors here. You know, you still have, you know, ability to go out and, you know, become something yourself. So I think that's really cool that he did that for you, especially if he went through it himself. He knew exactly what you were feeling. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, you know, and I've told Jacob this, uh, people look at me and, you know, especially I, in my book, I talk about the kind of stares I get, you know, it's funny. I've, I've documented the kind when I'm walking on the beach without my prosthetic device, you know, this guy thinks because he's got sunglasses on, I can't see his eyes moving. Well, I don't see his eyes moving, but his head's moving right along with me as I walk by. And then you get the, the look away stare where they're staring at you and they see you make eye contact and they look away real quick. You know, that'll make you feel a little depressed, but they don't mean it. You know, they're just curious. It's really uh, human nature when we see something different to examine it. And, you know, when somebody sees me and, and, um, the, the, the greatest thing, uh, and I'll tell this little story, my uh, five-year-old, I got 11 grandkids. And when this Liam was five, he asked me if I would speak to his class. And the teacher called me and said, boy, you could really help us, Mr. Riley. We're teaching kids about differences. And boy, if you could just talk and can you think you can get it down to the five-year-old level? I said, well, I've done some work with Special Olympics for first and second graders. Let's give it a shot because I seem to get through to most of them. And so I go in and I read this little story to them and, and uh, they're all sitting on the rug and they're looking at me. And I said, now let's talk about differences. I said, what is different about me that's different from all of you? What is different about Liam's grandfather, me, that's different from all of you? This cute little girl raises her hand and she says, you're old. And I went, <laughs> oh, where do I go from here? Both teachers are laughing so hard they're in the aisle. Then I asked the next kid, I said, what are you? That's right. I am old. What do you notice about me? He said, you wear glasses. I went, oh, my God, they don't even see it. They don't see the elephant in the room. They weren't ready yet. They just didn't put two and two together. And, you know, you put that together and I say, that's OK. You got to pay it forward in this life, no matter what it is. And if you have the ability to do that, and Caleb, you're right on. Rocky recognized that. I wasn't the first guy that he pulled out of a bed. And, you know, I've been down the Walter Reed Hospital, as I told Jacob. I got peer, peer, uh, peer training done, an eight-hour course where they do that, and I'm allowed to talk to the veterans that are coming in for from amputations. Well, my job became a unique when I was getting them ready to go out uh, into the real world after they, after they passed their DLAs, daily living activities. They wouldn't let them leave the hospital until they could cook five meals. If they had to drive a car, there was a simulator down there, yada, 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 yada. They wanted them to be able to do the basic skills. They weren't going to release them because they knew they would be, they'd find them in a corner somewhere with a bottle, empty bottle of Jack Daniels. So anyway, you know, I got to do that and I got to pay it forward there and I continue to pay it forward. And I'll tell you, there's not a better feeling in the world. If you have a problem, go try to help somebody and see if your problem doesn't get lighter. I'm telling you, it's one of the things that I've learned going through this process. And I'm sure you have a much better job talking to the uh, veterans than the guy who, who depressed you did. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's also part of this thing that I want to tell your audience is perspective. Okay, when things are going bad, sit back and think about the things that are going that well, the things that you have, your health, a roof over your head, you know, an education, whatever it is, 
And I'll tell you about perspective that hit me in the middle of the forehead, Jake, Caleb, just like you said. I mean, uh, one of the guys that I was interviewing, uh, not interviewing, but helping with his resume and his first couple interviews as he was leaving Walter Reed to enter the real world, um, was a guy from Texas. He had that draw, and you could just tell he was a go-getter. He told me that from the start. Now, it was the first time that I had met a triple amputee. He was missing both legs from under his knees and uh, missing his left arm. And before we got started, he said to me, Kevin, can I ask you a question? He said, did you lose your non-dominant arm or your dominant arm? No. Does that matter? Boy, does that matter. I was right-handed, and I didn't have to relearn writing, throwing a ball, driving a car. You lose your dominant arm. You got to relearn everything. And I said, no. I said, I lost my non-dominant arm. He said, so do I. Aren't we lucky? And I went, whoa, I'm not even in the same class as this guy, you know, yet alone. And I thought, what an attitude to have. And that gave me perspective. You know, it gave me perspective on be thankful for that I didn't lose my dominant arm. As a matter of fact, I went through an inventory. I said, if you had to lose a limb and you had to lose one, which would you lose? You'd lose an arm because you don't want to be having to use a walker or a prosthetic device to walk on. And so a lot of things that I thought I would never be able to do, I'm able to do and I'm do, do them quite well if you put your mind to it. And there are some things I can't do well, you know? I like, you know, they said, can you get into triathlon? Well, I went, tried to go swimming. But every time I, I went into the pool, I kept going in circles. So I quit that idea. I really think the perspective is so vital for for everyone, you know, taking... And, you know, it doesn't have to be a daily thing, but it's really great if it is, you know, those those things that you're saying that the end of the world, those big problems that we all have, you know, putting putting them in perspective and seeing the good and seeing focusing. I, I feel like we're in a, a society where it's so almost encouraged to lean on your shortcomings um, to to complain like that's what the social media places are for is to just pretty much complain or brag and there's no real in between but having that that internal and external like having conversations with you know the people around you of like the good like and it doesn't have to be the great but the good and and i think you you outlined that really well with with just yeah like i lost the best arm that i could lose you know if i had to choose one it'd be this one and and I, I I don't know. I think that's it's just a the perspective is huge as well. Like knowing that your problems are much smaller than what they actually are in the grand scheme of things is really important for you to like remove emotions from trying to solve them as well. Because if you look back in history and see problems that people you know in mass were having over years and even recently, you know your you know washing machine that's making a lot of noise is is not that high up on the scale you know it's there's a lot more important things to like that so when you have that perspective of seeing like you know things could always be worse you know i'm just gonna start trying to figure out and fix what's going on in front of me right now and not get so stuck in the now of feeling sorry for myself or you know being stressed as to why is this happening to me it's you know i'm glad this is happening to me it could always be so much worse like as you said you lost your non-dominant arm you know you that thought was not going through your head when it happened initially you know that was not something that um you know you were like that's a good silver lining you know it wasn't until much later down the road in hindsight that you saw 
that perspective. So it's not something that can be easily learned, it, you know, something over time. I think reading a lot of, you know, especially history as well, trying to see like what people were going through on the regular and where we're at now to try to put that back into perspective. But yeah, that is a really good piece of information to have floating in your head when you're thinking about your problems. Well, let me, let me give you a little detail on what we were just talking about. We are, and this is, this is documented, we are the biggest complainers in the world. The citizens of the United States of America who live in the finest country in the world. And if you want to find out how often you complain, uh, there's a book out about this. And this guy claimed to be right up there with anybody with complaining until he found out that it was costing corporations billions of dollars a year because of people complaining, not only complaining at the coffee you know, clutch or the, you know, the, the uh, lunchroom, but actually complaining on social media. Now, social media has become a steroid for people complaining, and they can do it anonymously if they want in some of the you know, social media gambits. Anyway, um, this guy started a little game that he found from a small company who actually developed it, and, you know, created it, I guess, internally. But uh, to find out how much you complain, you need a partner to work with in this little game and just do it for a week. And what happens is, let's just say that Jacob was Caleb's partner and Jacob says, damn, I hate this traffic in Philadelphia. It's terrible. And all Jacob has to say is the word, but, and then Caleb, you have to come back with a positive. But you know what? If you're going to be stuck, it would be good to be stuck on a beautiful day like this. And they challenged people to do that. And it got to be hysterical. They started doing it at home with their kids. And it makes you realize how often you complain and helps you capture a little bit of, you know, maybe I just ought to be more positive. And, and Caleb, you talked about, and I think Jacob mentions it too, emotions. Remember this, and this is the truth. You can look, any psychologist will tell you. Your brain, our brains can only deal with one emotion at a time. And with all of this division going on out there from absolutely stupid stuff, okay, we got families that now are, are you know, uh, in, in battlement with each other who don't talk to each other because of politics. That's ridiculous. And, you know, as long as you have anger and and, uh, you know, get back at people and revenge in your brain, you can't have the two wonderful emotions of joy or happiness because it can't exist in there. So think about this. The sum of your worst enemies, you are renting the space in your head that belongs to the emotions of joy and happiness and peace. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Think about that. And my answer to that is let most of it go. Let it go. Let that guy who's tailgating you pull over, let him pass you. Don't give him the finger. And if you're really, really good and have a good moral compass, say a little prayer for him because it just doesn't help us. And I wished I learned that a long time ago. Here I was, 16 years of football from grade school through the NFL as a linebacker. You know what I was taught? When hit, hit back harder. <laughs> you know, that works in that sport, but it doesn't work in life. Like the feeling of resentment that you get that builds up inside you with that negative feeling just removes and harbors so much negative energy inside you that you you know as you said you don't have room for the the positives and especially with you know even with your significant other if you have problems going on you know small things that you just bury deep down inside and keep that bottled up and then keep going through life and not you know talk about that kind of stuff that feeling of resentment can build and you know, just like you said, you don't feel that happiness and joy, which then causes more negative problems to come up in in the future. So, yeah, having 
problems stay in your head rent free, you know, for no reason whatsoever, but just not trying to, you know, take the harder road and, and take the high road pretty much on that and, you know, talk about whatever's going on, especially with, you know, relationships close to you. Like you said, with politics now, it's dividing people across the entire country and, you know, something so simple that could just be talked about and, you know, find similar ground on, you can easily squash those negative feelings and get right back onto like you said, the positive joys and happiness there. So resentment is one thing we talked about a lot, you know, being with your significant other in this process of investing in real estate, because with our strategy, you know, we're moving together multiple times, you know, once every year. So it's, it's a lot of stress to go on and communication just extremely important for that setting the priorities of, you know, where you want to be, what's going on in the short term now, so that that way long term, you don't have a lot of problems that come boiling up with a lot of communication. Right. And, and and with all of those sacrifices that, you know, we're making, we made the decision and now we're dragging our significant other along the road, which in the long term, in our heads, it's going to be very beneficial to them as well. So it's, it, you know, a short term sacrifice for a greater reward. But um, I, I really like that, that activity, like with me and Kayla, but I, I almost think I like it more to play it with people that don't know they're playing. I think I'm going to start doing that. Like whenever <laughs> someone complains about something, I'll be like, but, and then just be that guy that pisses everyone off. Cause if they don't, I don't know. I, th- I think it could be funny. Um, well, you could have that. They, they did say they had a lot of fun with it. And some of the companies that tried it and, you know, came to the resolution that things got better, not a hundred percent better, but they got better. Mm. And Caleb, you know, you bring up a good point. I think in any situation problems you have, I'm not telling people, not to face the music when it happens. I'm telling you to pick your fights. I mean, you know, don't get upset over, you know, some the, the wife packed you the wrong lunch. Oh, well, okay, put it behind you. But see, in this stressful life we lead, that could be the tipping point. That's the thing that comes in, where to recognize. Is this a big problem or is this something that uh, in my Catholic education, they would say, offer up for the poor souls in purgatory. And a lot of times we can just let it go, offer it up for something. But it gives you a little bit of discipline to be able to do that. Because we all like to vent, and it makes you a little humbler, and there's not a person in the world that doesn't like a humble person. And, you know, uh, something that I constantly have to work on is due to the fact, you know, you're standing in front of 800 people, and they give you a standing ovation. And I go home, and I'm thinking, hey, man, I'm pretty hot stuff. Wife asked me to take the garbage out, you know? So, I mean, you got to be able to come down to those times. But I think it's really important, Jacob and Caleb, to say you have to get people to know um, they got to be on the same page of you, with you, when you enter these processes. Because as Jacob says, yeah, short-term, uh, you know, strain and short-term, you know, uh, problems for long-term gain is definitely worth it if you're all buying into the same principle. And then to be able to be counselors to each other when things go wrong. If, you know, I never wanted to be in this game to begin with. Well, wait a second. That's not what you said. And we're going to be fine and do it calm rather than strike back. Um, another lesson I wish I learned earlier in life. But, you know, you just got to pick your fights and also take a deep breath before you respond to anything. Uh, I have watched careers go down the tube with people responding angrily on, you know, emails and not knowing that seven other people were copied in. They were so angry they didn't see who was on the link. And, you know, uh, one of the things we had a sign of was don't email and drink. Like don't drink and drive, don't drink an email. It leads to bad consequence. So, I mean, a lot of this just, if you could just calm yourself down in the stressful world, 
Hey, by the way, none of us move any faster. Nobody in the world moves any faster than the Americans. And that's both a positive and a negative because we don't get sometimes the time to sort things out that some of the other countries do. I just spoke for a company that's, it's, um, it's, it has its headquarters in uh, Switzerland, but it's incorporated here in Delaware. And in Switzerland, like a lot of European companies, they take five straight weeks off in the summer. And this guy reminded the crowd because they were going to have a very busy summer because of the, the uh, uh, business they were in, that you can get your five weeks, you all get them, but you're not going to get them in a row, not here in the United States, <laughs> because that would just stop the business. Uh, but, you know, it, it happens over there and the rest of the world. And I think that's why we're some of the leaders in the industry are, is we've got the work ethic to just barrel forward, but temper that with time you need to take for family and friends. We're on this podcast and we're kind of, you know, preaching the hustle now, hustle now while you can make the sacrifices now so that later you can take and enjoy life and take the breaks that you need to become financially dependent, you know, before you're 30, that you don't need to show up to that job. You don't need to be a part of that fast pace if you don't want to be, you know, some, some guys, and I don't know what, what I'll be like when I'm there, but I, I can see it going both ways. I could see myself wanting to keep hustling, but at the same time, to be able to have the ability to step back and go somewhere for a month or two months, three months, we're kind of having this um, battle because we're talking about now, you know, the importance of slowing down and taking a break and reminding yourself that, you know, things are okay. We're, we're in this high standard society that, you know, keeps pushing forward, show up to work every day, work 100 hours a week, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we're taking that and talking to all these people who want to really get ahead, like, okay, instead of working those 40 hours a week, work 100. Like, do that now, because it's going to pay off later. But like, what are your thoughts on like, is there a balance there? Is there, would you encourage if, if you were in our shoes, would you be Focusing on that full tilt and maximizing the opportunity now to enjoy it later, or would you be trying to enjoy more now? Would like what based on your life and seeing, you know, going through everything, like what would be your take on that? Well, this is the kind of thing that I handle in the training. And I'll just give you my training answer on this is that if you start to do the prioritization and you start to manage your time, laying things out, you start eliminating your time wasters all process. And if you start doing it regularly, it becomes very easy to do. And you and you you actually want to do it after a while. It's tough at first, like anything. They say you want to start a new habit, give it 35 days. Okay. Give this 35 days and see if you aren't finding some things out. And you should schedule your off time just like you would schedule a big meeting or you know a big opportunity or a big whatever presentation. If you said to your wife and family, I'm taking you to Wildwood this weekend. We're leaving Friday night and we're coming back Monday morning. Don't let something take that off the schedule. You can do your, if it all goes back to managing your time and setting priorities. And those are some basics. This is the blocking and tackling that the successful people have that we've left behind because of computerization and technology. We think we can solve everything with technology. You still have to use the human brain to do what's important to me, to my job, and then make those priorities and schedule and hold to the schedule. Now, there are exceptions to every rule. You're not going to you're not going to give up a closing day because you said you were going to the Phillies game uh, that afternoon. Okay, 
Well, you got to make those decisions, you know, selectively. But try to stay and make sure, because what does it gather you if you went through this for five to 10 years and you lose a spouse because they found somebody else that was paying more attention to them on either side of the fence? And here's another thing that when you talk about time management and managing things, when I was coming out of college, I made sure, Caleb and uh, Jacob, that I did the same thing that you guys did, even though I was going the NFL. And you know why they call it the NFL? It stands for not for long. That's how long you'll be there, okay? And I knew that I was going to have to have a career after, you know, the NFL. So I figured I would play four to five years. Well, I played four, and I figured I'd have to do something after that. And I, one guy that was giving me advice had worked himself up from the mailroom at Atlas, Atlas Chemical to ICI president in 25 years. So I really were, was, you know, I really um, worshipped what he was going to say because I knew that this was a guy that went through all the steps. And he said to me, I think you ought to go to law school. Oh, I said, law school. I said, why would you think that? He said, you're smart enough. You got really great speaking skills. Go to law school. I said, you know what? If I get out of the NFL when I'm 26 in five more years, I'll be 26 years old. If I spend five years in the NFL, I'll be 26 years old starting law school. You know what he said to me? How old are you going to be in five years anyway? Set a goal for it. And let's, after five years, let's sit back and let's resurrect or let's um, dissect rather if this is working or not. And if it is, let's make the proper changes to it. And if it isn't, we need to go another direction. You're still young. You can do that. So that's my, you know, my answer to that question. But talk, open the lines of communication and couples should spend as much time together as they can. No, I, I really value that. Be, just, it was one line that you had just said that it was like, you know, what's, what's it worth, you know, in those five years of grinding, hustling and not prioritizing your significant other, what's that worth it when they're, they leave you, you know, and then it's not. Because, you know, you're, we're building our lives around these significant others and hopes of enjoying this, you know, we're making these early sacrifices, but if they become too great, you know, I, I dealt with that with, with the first deal that we did, you know, I was working my full-time job, painting on the side, settling on my first triplex, finding tenants, fixing up the house. It was hell, you know, and I was, was just pushing through it, pushing through it, pushing through it, and I... When my significant other was, Jake, spend some time with me, sit on the couch for a minute. It was like, I'd blow up. It was like, how could you be so selfish? I'm doing this for us. And like, it's funny now in hindsight, but in the time it wasn't, you know, it, it was, it was serious. And I, that's how I felt. Um, but I think I, I have made significant changes since then. Like we've really worked our stuff out, but at the same time we're preaching to, Hey, start hustling. Like, but I think you're saying that there is a huge balance in between hustle, 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 and then treating those weekend to Wildwood, the the trip here, this with the same intensity and the same intention of all the other things that are so important because it it as building blocks if you if each one's contributing, you know, that's just as important as the other. So I I really value that too. And it's, it's, it's an individual situation. Every individual is different. What would work for you might not work for Caleb, okay, right. and vice versa. you got to find it. And that's part of the, the journey is finding it because nobody starts out and says, well, this is what I'm going to do. You don't know what you're going to do until you get into it, okay? 
And then you may have to make some adjustments. Don't be afraid to make adjustments to your plan as you're going along. And the other thing, you know, as we're getting towards the end of this that I, I would say, look long-term. Like if you're 25, 30 years old and you do this business right now that you're doing and you get to 40 and now you're making a comfortable living and you need to reevaluate. Do you want to continue on with what you're doing? Or do you now, because you've got a little bit of money in the bank and you've got some assets and you're moving along, or do you want to try something different? Because I'll tell you something, if you don't love what you do at 40, it's really a grind. Uh, if you love what you do at 40, okay, it's not a job, okay? It's, it's a vocation. And here I am last weekend turning 70, and I want to tell you, speaking engagements that I do for, for money or for charity or, you know, some of the other fun where I do some auctioneering for charities, I love doing it. And it's not a burden and it keeps me young and it keeps me, you know, tied in. You're going to have to make those decisions in the future, but they're out there. You're, okay, you're, you're allowed to think about them on your journey to your first five years and your first 10 years. And don't be afraid to change your parameters. That's all I'm saying. You know, on those lines of going forward, looking forward in time, I was curious about like what your perspective is on like what the best way going forward to set your goals are, mostly just like almost as something that we could all do, say tonight or this weekend, just to think about our goals for the future. Something that, you know, is it a certain time frame? do you think, or is it more of a, like a place that you want to be, or what is your like guidelines that you've, you know, found to be best for actually picking goals and setting them for yourself to have the best outcome? Well, you know, I always said work backwards with that when I, when I would talk to my people at Xerox. And one of the things I would do at the first of the year, I'd have a two-hour planning session with them. And I wanted to see what they brought to the planning session. And I was really uh, disappointed uh, the first time that I did this because I had 10 sales reps and only two of them came with a goal of the amount of money they wanted to make during the year. And, you know, we had salary plus compensation based on how well you did, you know, with your budget and then marketing with your budget. And, you know, people would come in and I'd say, well, what's your goal? Why, what do you mean? What's your goal for a year? Well, you know, I know what my salary is. Well, yeah, but if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. What are you going to try to get out of compensation? I wanted somebody to set a goal, and, and then I would try to set it 10% higher, telling them how good they were. And some of them were that good. And if they were that good, I'd say, don't do this to me. Don't, you know, don't give me this bull. You can do 20% more than this. I knew who was sandbagging. And I challenged them to them. And I put that in my office. The ones who didn't have goals, we made them during the planning session. And that became the process. Okay, what do you want to do monetarily that's going to make you happy? And then the other thing you have to do, what do I have to do to make sure that I'm a good father, a good husband, a good wife, you know, a good neighbor? And set those goals. There are individual goals, you know? Get involved in a charity. Pay it forward while you're young, okay? Get some fulfillment out of that. And set the goals monetarily. You know, it's two different. you have two different lives, your work life and your personal life. Make sure that you're spending the right of time to meet your goals. The other thing that I would make them do is during the last quarter, we'd all bring out that piece of paper and say, here's where you are. You're going to have a rob a bank to get to this goal, or we're going to have to really set a strategy in place to drive you during the last quarter. And believe it or not, people will move faster and do more when they're under pressure to make that goal then. And that's what happened. Uh, I would say 70% of them made that what looked to be an unattainable goal because then we set a new process in place. You know, it was like the two minute drill. You don't use the same plays you've been using the whole game. You're going to use some plays to score. So we're going to do some elephant hunting. We're going to go after some 
big accounts and we're going to give them major discounts in December and November to make decisions for this year so you get paid your compensation. So it's, it's about setting goals, reevaluating where you are and getting there, tweaking them from time to time. And then when you're beating them, boy, is that fulfilling? Is that fulfilling? You know, when I work for these charities, I have two goals. I have the goal that I'm going to tell all the people that are involved in the charity. And I have the goal that I'm going to tell the board that we're really going to try to reach. Because if we don't reach the stretch goal, you have people feeling like they're failures and they're not. You know, if you got to 90% of the stretch goal, but that's a mentality, you know, oh, I didn't get to refail. Then you feel like, why am I trying so hard? And it makes you depressed. People love to win. Give them a goal they can win with. And then ask them what their stretch goal is and move forward from there. Or keep it between you and your wife or whoever your partner is. Here's our goal. And we'll be successful if we make this. But here's our stretch goal. And boy, come the end of that period, you watch how the era your momentum picks up a little bit and how your energy level kicks in. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that a lot. I, I think the two, my two takeaways from that are kind of one where, where you're saying, okay, you're setting a monetary goal and you're setting your kind of personal goal. You have your work and your home life and you're, you're kind of trying to intermingle them. But I see that as like, okay, during the week, I need my goal is to be there for her for this, this, and this. I need this much time per week for this person. And now that's narrowing down my work time that I'm capable of working. So now I have to make those goals of what I want monetarily within that time frame. Instead of the other way around where a lot of times the monetary thing is goal number one and then whatever's left kind of trickles into the other things where now you're able to kind of Focus on this because this is what's going to be there forever. And then really devote that energy monetarily into what you have left. And I think that's that's a really good point and something that a lot of people can internalize. Well, it circles right back to the first things that you t- started talking about, which was you know goal setting, time management, and prioritization, and having your priorities set first to know like what is most important to you to then be able to create your goals from to then go further downstream and then design the management of your time so individually what how much time you're going to spend on each goal to then you know reach what your priorities are and you know a system as simple as that you know as it sounds can be pretty complicated to do especially sticking with it for a lot of time but you know i if if you were able to stick with that, I could see, you know, you getting a lot of success in both personal and business life in tandem. Well, Caleb, I'll, I'll fill you in. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. Once you start doing it, it becomes a habit. I still have an annual goal every year. I know, man, 2020 was a blowout. I had 20, 23 uh, gigs, you know, speeches to give that were canceled. Blew that gold out of the water, but beyond my control, what am I going to do? But that doesn't happen. That doesn't hurt me coming into this year thinking I can do some makeup and there's a lot of pent up money that people are trying to spend for training and motivation and all that. And I'm going to run like hell right now because you know what? My goals are now called my bucket list. Mm. (laughs) Okay. And I can just tell you a couple things. I have spoken in 28 states. I want to, before I hang it up, I want to be able to say I've spoken all 50 states. Okay. That'll make me a bona fide national you know, uh, motivational speaker. But in order for me to speak in Alaska, uh, I'm going to probably have to offer my services free of time. You know, there's going to be some state that just doesn't want me. You know, 
I have spoken in South Dakota to tell you I've gotten some of these hard ones out of the way, but I'm looking forward to doing that. I don't know if I'll get there, but if I get to 40, that's pretty good. But I'm going to try to get all, you know, all of the states. And the other thing is, you know, I set my, I'll set my annual goals. And I also set some time management that I, time I want to spend with my 11 grandkids. I actually clock it out. And there's a couple of them that would really use my time a lot better than others because they just need some one-on-one with pop-up that the other one doesn't. And, you know, I've I identified that and I try to do it, although you try to treat everybody equally. Some need a little more help. And that's what, at the end of the day, I can lay my head down and say, I'm doing okay. You know, you know, I'm, I'm not the best person in the world, but I'm trying to get there and I'm trying every day. And that's all that the man upstairs asks from us, is we use the talents we have to the best benefit we can for ourselves, treat ourselves well, and also for our fellow man. I, I really like aspire to to be in a position where you're at at 70. You know, it, it's really, it, it is a, a huge inspiration um, to me and I'm sure to the listeners, like doing something that you're truly passionate about. And like that's w- with our podcast and with the investing stuff, It that's what we're hoping people gain the ability to do is have the financial freedom to now pursue, take the risk and do the things that they are truly passionate about. We're like, it's very evident that that's what you're doing and you're enjoying life and you're enjoying what you're considering work. And so I, I just, again, I, I really want to thank you. And I, I wanted to, two more things. I, I wanted to, to ask what for, for the demographic of our audience, you know, we're from like the end of high school to like 30s there's definitely some older but that's kind of guys starting out in life um just like any quick you know clear advice that you've gained over the years that you could just i know you've given a lot of advice throughout the whole episode but just a few quick things and then we want to hear about kind of where we can where we can hear more about you right well the talking to the demographics you talked about and um i've just had this conversation over the last year with a couple people that Five years ago, I would have never had the conversation. I believe right now, and I shouldn't say this out loud, I guess, but I really believe that uh, college education, the universities have lost their way with the amount of money they're charging, putting you guys in debt beyond, you know, realistic limit, you know, realistic uh, or, you know, profiles. And I really wonder, you know, why when I went through Villanova, which is a great university and I did learn a lot of things there. And one of the things that I didn't learn was negotiating skills. Why didn't we have negotiating skills? Look what would help your demographic to have classes in negotiating skills, how to negotiate, because you got to negotiate with people that are fixing your houses up, blah, 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 blah. And your average age group is going to buy an average of four to six cars before the whole thing goes to cars driving themselves. So why don't they teach us negotiations? But I got 12 credits of French. That helps me with the crossword puzzle. <laughs> and the other thing they don't have, if you look at universities, there's some reason they don't want to call it sales. They call it marketing. And they, you know, it's like they're ashamed of it calling it sales. It seems like it's seedy or something. Well, I just want to tell you, you're not missing anything if you don't go to college. What I will tell you is you should do is absorb everything you can from every contractor that you see so that you become proficient at what you do in that business. And if you're flipping houses, you got to know who the good contractors are. And if you don't know, you maybe want to develop some of your own to do, you know, the kind of work that gets 
around the, the horn. I mean, now you know who does good work because of social media being able to do the surveys, and you know who doesn't because they can rip you on there. And so I would say learn the trades because this country is going to need tradespeople in the worst, worst ways. They need them now. Look at how everything has slowed down. Try to get somebody to come fix something at your house right now, you know, in 24 or 48 hours notice. Uh, they don't even call you back. If you become, you know, efficient and you are at the top of the ladder in this industry, flipping houses and knowing who to go to and quality work, never lose sight of the quality. Quality will always win out. Quality, if you do quality work, they will beat a path to your door because word gets out there. You know, this was done back in the days when we did leadership through quality, but this was like 25, 30 years ago that we at Xerox hired somebody to do a survey. Do you know when you've had a bad meal at a restaurant that you tell an average of 11 people over the next course of the year and you don't go back, even if it's been one of your favorite places? And do you know that if you had a great meal, you only tell an average of three people? So for every customer that was unsatisfied, okay, you have to get four to stay even. Think about that. And that goes across industries. That's just not in the restaurant business. That goes across industries. Quality work and learning your business will get you to a place that no college degree can get you. I think that's great advice. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Colleges have definitely come toward a lot towards more of a business than an institution of helping, you know, increase the bottom line of people's understanding of what they need to you know move up in the world so i couldn't agree with you more and especially what you mentioned earlier that i just remember now that you know working towards being better every single day just a little bit better every single day you know can go can take you such a long way and you know even with especially a trade you know that we have the founder of the creator of the show, Dirty Jobs. He goes and explains all these jobs that nobody wants anymore. They're just everyone wants a white collar job. You know, no one wants to do that stuff anymore. So, you know, you're definitely not wrong with that one. But uh, we we do want to know, um, you know, where can our audience go to find out more about you, learn more about what your message is, and you know, anything about that? Well, if they go to my website, it's www dot k the, the letter k riley r-e-i-l-l-y i've got a complete website there that'll tell you about testimonials that i had jacob i just got one from the new york yankees from last year and that was a, a real treat when i went out there to speak to them at the stadium it was their administrative group it wasn't the team i, I wish but uh, they had on the scoreboard on yankee stadium lit up welcome kevin riley oh i had to take a picture of that never saw my my name in lights like that but you go on uh, there, you can get basically any kind of information you want. And there's even some videos on there if you're interested in, you know, me speaking somewhere. And you can also find out how to order my book. Uh, it's on Amazon, Tackling Life. And, um, yeah, it's it's about the ups and downs in life. And it's about, you know, some of the mistakes I made and, and that I'm not real proud of. And uh, some of the things that I just owned up to, to to straighten myself out. Caleb said, as long as you're trying to get better every day. That's all somebody can ask, really. And you're living, a, you know, a moral life and you're not taking anybody down with you. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll just close with, I learned this, believe it or not, from watching who at one time was called Cassius Clay and became Muhammad Ali. I noticed that when he was being interviewed or when he was captured on tape, he would talk to anybody. He was interested in people. And he became the most famous person in the world, I believe, during his, the, you know, the, the pike of his career. Uh, because of his, um, I don't know, his presence, 
you know, he would talk to a little kid and just ask him, well, what, what are you doing? You know, how do you like it here? He was interested in people. And I find out that one of the things that I took from that is talk to everybody. And when I was at Xerox, I found out, you know, I wasn't talking to the service guys when I got on the elevator. It was, you know, I talked to a sales guy. Why was I doing that? This guy's out there with my customers every day. He could be a great lead for me if you knew a customer that was unhappy with the machine or who's looking at competition. Why aren't I treating him as if I was one of my one of my sales reps? And I took that because I wasn't doing it. It was something I was doing wrong. And I'm talking about you go to the grocery store, say hello to the waitress, say hello to the, the cashier, treat them as good human beings, and you won't believe the goodness that comes back to you. When people ask me how I'm doing, I say, if I was any better, I'd be twins. And it always makes them smile. Okay. And my wife is so tired of hearing that she wants to hit me in the head with a board. But I'm going to keep saying it if it keeps people smiling. All right. So that's my little tidbit to you. Get along with people. Try to reach out. And don't take life so seriously. Jacob, one last thing. You know I'm religious. If you get to heaven before I do, bore a hole and pull me through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. We, we really, this has been awesome. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and sitting down and giving us giving us an hour or so, you know, I, there's so much in here that I think people can, can really pull from. And well, I, Jacob, you can, you can have me back. So, you know, well, get to the point where you're having 5,000 people listen to this and I'll come back. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, that's the next goal for us to set then. Yeah. <laughs> so, awesome. All right, Kevin. Thanks again, man. All right. All right, Jacob. Caleb, nice meeting you, buddy. You as well. Thanks a lot for coming right. again. Hang out with that guy. He's gold. <laughs> yes, sir.